So yeah, so despite it only being July, we're going to embody Ebenezer Scrooge this week as we look at the past, present and future of motor claims. I mean, what's not to love about that? (laughs) The only thing I didn't like about that is that it's not July. Oh, God, it's August. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, God. It's not even just August. It's the middle of August. (laughs) That's brilliant. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website. Let's kick off with this week's episode. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Matt Patterson. So nice to have you with us today. Thank you very much for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we've had many happy years working together in your time at Admiral, and it's been really fun sort of debating all the various different trends that we've been seeing in the claims data and relating that back to what you and colleagues were seeing in your day-to-day work with the claims. But I wonder if, if you would perhaps just take us back to the, you know, the start of your career and just talk us through the, you know, your experience and the things you've been involved in, and then also bring us up to date on, on what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Happy to. I've been in insurance for 25 years. I'll confess that when I joined 25 years ago, I had no intention or thought I'd be there beyond about two or three. I think like like most people who join that industry. But I was really fortunate to join a business that when I joined in the 1990s, it was small. It was basically in startup mode. It had one product, one brand, one office in Cardiff. And I was there for 25 years, during which time it it was an inspirational success story where it it grew exponentially into this multi-product, multi-brand, global FTSE 100 financial services provider that was hugely successful and, and continues to be successful. And it was it was a really unique journey for me to be part of. I was lucky to be in claims and um, nearly all of my time there, and in various different leadership roles. I started out as a bodily injury handler. And my role for most of the last 10 years was the most privileged one I had, which was to lead Admiral's Claims Liability Department. And we dealt with bodily injury, third party, credit hire, and fraud claims. So it was a really big, important function part of the business. And it was great to have that chance to design and implement strategies that would lead us to um, some of the success that we had. So that's, that's where I was. I'm not there anymore. 25 years is it's a long time. And, you know, marriage aside, I don't think anything's forever. It felt like the right time for me to move on and do something else. I had always wanted to test myself in another way. And so I took six months off, recharged the batteries, and get myself ready for my current challenge, which is I'm a consultant. I've set up a business called Silverbeam Consulting. And we're there to support the insurance sector, whether it's insurers, brokers, law firms, TPAs, MGAs, and helping them to understand strategy, present great customer outcomes, improve profitability, and understand what the future might look like and how to get ready for it. So that's where I am so far. I started only five weeks ago, and I'm pleased that the phone has been ringing and there's lots of interesting people and really interesting businesses that I'm already speaking to. So, so far, so good, but it's early days. 
That's amazing. And it'll be, as part of our chat today, it'd be lovely to touch on just, you know, what the experience has been like setting up your own business and being back in that startup mode again, effectively. Mildly terrifying on occasion, but... Uh, <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. Did you do anything nice in your six months off? Yes, I did actually. We did some traveling, which was rather nice. I fell back in love with the concept of time and having time on your hands. So it was brilliant to spend time with my wife and family in a way that perhaps I hadn't done when, you know, you're going full pelt at your career. So it was lovely to do that. I tried and failed to make my goal any better. <laughs> and then I then focused really hard on the consultancy side of things because I was always wanted to go again, had that energy to keep going at it. And that was always the intention. Amazing. Yes. So let's dive in. So following on from my, my lovely analogy at the beginning, we're going to start with the past. And here, what I really want to discuss is reforms um, that have kind of happened in the industry you know, recently, but the impact that that's then having kind of on claims going forward. So there's been a couple that we'll touch upon, but I want to kind of start with the whiplash reforms. So for anyone that's not really aware of them, very high level, these came in in May 2021. And at a very high level, um, it was changing the way that claims less than £5,000 were kind of settled. So I guess, you know, what kind of impact have these reforms had on the industry and helped resolve the problems that it was intending to? I think it depends from which angle you're looking at it from as to whether you think it's a success or not. You have to give the, the MOJ, the Ministry of Justice, some credit here. You know, their intention with this has been to reduce spend and if you look at it so far, you would say, well done, you've achieved that. The damages spend has gone down. And as you mentioned, the small claims track has gone up to £5,000. So insurers are avoiding having to pay the majority of lawyers' costs. So in that respect, well done. This is off the back of, you know, I'm old enough to know the amount of reforms that the government have been aiming at this area for so long, for so many years, and really failing. You know, they, 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 they've achieved really the square root of, frankly, not very much at all with, with Medco, with the MOJ portal and fixed costs and LASPO and the banning of referral fees. I go back a long way on this and it hasn't really achieved anything. I did wonder whether this was the nuclear option, which was to add tariff damages into it and really reduce it. But as with so much with the whiplash reforms, there's gaps in it and there's unintended consequences coming out of it. And yes, it's early days, but there are a number of really difficult unintended consequences that we're starting to deal with. And what are some of those difficult and unintended consequences? Well, I had numerous meetings with the MOJ officials in the run-up to these reforms. And the common thread through all of it was that these reforms were being aimed at the man and woman in the street, that they would be able to administer their own claim without the need of having a lawyer involved or a claims management company involved. That isn't happening. You're looking at the portal data now, and I think it's less than 10% of all claims are coming from unrepresented claimants. So the vast majority of, of it is still through lawyers. In fact, one of the surprising things is claims management companies aren't really involved in this space. It's mainly lawyers that, that are still doing this. And so you've got this great chance of people who are going still through lawyers and pursuing their claim that way. The damages they're getting are tariff damages when it's a whiplash-only claim. But follow the money. Follow the money. Because two-thirds of claims coming out of the portal so far are whiplash plus something else. 
Whiplash only accounts for about three in 10 of the claims that are currently settling. Because Whiplash is worth X, and Whiplash plus something else is worth X plus Y. And so there's clearly an incentive for them to get that. They still don't get the legal fees attached to it, but they're getting higher damages as a result. What we're beginning to see is that some law firms are shunning those claimants who have whiplash only. We've seen someone come out and say, if it's whiplash only, we're not interested. In brackets, what they're saying is we can't make any money out of this. It's not worthwhile as pursuing that claim for you. And here, I think, is one of the interesting unintended consequences from these reforms. Those people are lost. They're just not making claims. Let me look at some really interesting data here from the Compensation Recovery Unit. Compare quarter two of this year with quarter two of 2020. Quarter two of 2020 was the first lockdown. Nobody was driving, basically. Quarter two of this year was not up to pre-pandemic levels yet in driving, but a lot more people are back on the road. The Compensation Recovery Unit data measures the number of people that have made personal injury claims. But the data for this year in Q2 is less than what it was for the same period in 2020. So even though driving levels have gone exponentially higher than what they were in 2020, there are less, marginally less, but less personal injury claims being made. Now that, if government's intention here was to reduce cost and reduce frequency, then they probably achieved it. But I'm not sure that's a great outcome for people who are genuinely injured in accidents that aren't their fault and are seeing this portal and thinking, we don't know what to do. It's a very difficult place for them to be. And then the, these additional injuries, the sort of X plus Y scenario, what are the most common additional injury types that we're seeing? And again, what I know it's always hard to speculate on any individual case, but to what extent is that lawyers being clever and construing an additional injury, or to what extent is it just the natural way that these accidents occur? I have to be careful I don't cast aspersions on the legal sector because we've crossed swords before, you know, and it's, it's, it's what I've spent my life doing. But I think it's easy to be cynical. The fact that if it's whiplash only, some lawyers, only some it should be said, but some lawyers have come out in the press and said we're not interested in those claims. There is an incentive for them to add something to it. So that something could be a sprain, a twist, a bruise. And yes, it has to be settled via a medical report. And that medical report has to be done by somebody who's qualified and is independent. So that is a way of policing some of them, some of it. But as I said, you, you follow the money trail here, and there's this incentive for you to improve the damages by adding something else to it. So I think that is a concern for it, and it's the people who have whiplash and whiplash only who are currently not being represented that I think is is probably a worry. I don't anticipate government doing anything about it, for all that said. I, th- I think they've got significantly bigger fish to fry right now. I don't think this is a priority for the MOJ. The next time it goes into Parliament, I think is April of 2024, when the FCA will have concluded a report as to whether all these whiplash reforms have resulted in savings being passed on to consumers or not. That's that's for insurers to report by October of next year, I think. But I'm not anticipating any radical change with this. The only point I would make is around whiplash, plus there is a, a working party looking to accelerate some legal guidance from the Court of Appeal So they're beginning to get some decisions which they can appeal into the Court of Appeal to get some guidance as to how those sorts of claims should be settled.
So just just one follow-on question for me on whiplash, and then we should probably move on to our next topic. But for an insurer who is trying to get a firm handle on exactly how large has the saving been, so, you know, so that they can feed that through accurately into their reserving, into their pricing, planning, etc. We know that insurers are struggling to solve that puzzle. What would you say to them? What are the things they can look at in their data or more broadly to try and get a better estimate of the whiplash reform saving? I think it's a good question, but it's a tricky one for them to answer because I've mentioned it before. It's, it is still early days. You know, we're looking at the settlement times in this portal increasing rapidly. It's now 175 days on average, six months settle these and what we're seeing is that the longer prognosis cases are beginning to settle so it's taking a little while for this to properly unwind and for insurers to really get a, an accurate sense of where they're going with this they have to report by october next year so they'll have a, a much clearer sightline of it at that point but it still will have that such as the nature of the longevity of whiplash injuries that they won't really get a very complete picture for a while yet but if you look at it objectively you would say there is a saving here for insurance companies. You know, the damages are less. Even on the Whiplash Plus cases, the damages are less, and they're not paying the lawyer fees that historically they did. So the indemnity spend has reduced, and therefore we expect insurance companies to be able to represent some savings when they're reporting back to the FCA. The government talked about 35 45 The figure changed so regularly. I think it was £35 per policy they were talking about. I don't know whether it'll be possible for insurers to accurately be able to reflect that or not. And there's so many other different parts of the claim that's costing lots more that actually might be eating away at that anyway. We might want to talk about some of those. But this is one for next year's reporting, I think. Great. So the other kind of reform we just wanted to briefly touch upon were the FCA pricing reforms. So this came in at the start of this year. And once again, very basically... The idea with this reform was to stop new customers being charged a massively discounted rate and then renewal customers being kind of charged more to kind of offset that difference. And the idea was to have a bit more of a consistent pricing across customers. So I guess it's probably still quite early doors in that being brought in. But yeah, interesting to hear your thoughts on that change and if it's going to have the desired effect. You're right. It's definitely early days with this one. But what we're seeing so far is predictable. We're seeing that renewal prices are either coming down or they're lagging the rate of increase that we're seeing for new business customers. So new business customers are paying a little bit more. Renewals customers are paying a little bit less. It'll take a little bit of time for this to unwind. And the whole pricing thing, we might talk about inflation later, I'm sure, and what that impact will have on inflation is just at, a, at an interesting point in time. But if we just step back a little bit and look at what the FCA are doing here, the FCA had a, a go at this three or four years ago, maybe a bit, a bit longer than that, when they mandated insurers to put last year's premium on the renewal documents. And I, you know, I'm interested in this stuff, so I would look at it, but I'm the sort of guy that's going to be shopping around anyway. Other people are just set to auto renew and might just not worry about it at all. It didn't really amount to a hill of beans, frankly. They didn't do it. So the FCA moving into this more, into this sort of transitory stage where I think they're trying to get on the front foot. They're trying to regulate in a way that is going to spot the smouldering issues before they actually catch fire. Because I think the FCA has been 
whether it's fair to say they've been asleep at the wheel, we've seen an, a whole host of different financial crises um, and conduct issues that have led to genuine customer detriment of their savers, bankers, investors. We've seen a whole variety of these. And what we're seeing now with the FCA on this sort of reform and with the consumer duty that's coming in in April of next year is a shift of the FCA moving on to the front foot so that they can try and spot these issues before they come issues. Great. I think that's to be welcomed. I'm just a little bit sceptical about it because in doing this, what they're asking insurers and all financial institutions that they regulate to do is give them huge amounts of data, ask them to do lots of attestations and reporting, which, of course, costs insurance companies resource and time and money to do that. Do the FCA have the capacity and the wherewithal to process all this data to be able to spot those red flags? I literally, I don't know. But I do know that the FCA is under some pressure. And I, I read today that Liz Trust was thinking about merging the FCA and the PRA, the Prudential Regulatory Authority. So it's something that's that's within the sight lines. And I think that whilst I admire the sort of sense of getting on the front foot and spotting these issues before they become issues, can they do that in reality? So one conversation that I've had recently on these reforms was along the lines of, well, in the first year of the reforms coming in, most renewal customers got fairly good news, basically, because they've probably got a lower pre- renewal premium than they were expecting. And as a result, retention has been good. Shopping around has, has not been at its normal levels. But of course, you can't give that same gift again next year. And so the real, you know, where the rubber hits the road and where things could get tough and insurers might find themselves anti-selected against is in that second renewal. Is that fair? I think we have to be careful, and I'm particularly sensitive about this, because price walking did happen in the industry, but it's definitely not all firms. Not all. There was a number of firms out there for whom price walking simply wasn't an issue. I don't know if the FCA wants to disagree with that, and they have evidence to say that, but, but I've seen for myself that there was certainly some firms out there that weren't price walking, that were looking after their customers and were putting their customers' needs first. I think what you might potentially get with this is that customers don't shop around as much because they think that the price they get is the new business equivalent, therefore they're happy with it. But that pivots on them knowing about these reforms. And frankly, I'd be surprised if this was uh, high on people's agenda to understand about the FCA's general insurance pricing practices. One never knows, but I'd be surprised. So I think people resort to type. Those who auto-renew probably will auto-renew, although I know there are some rules around that. And shoppers like me who like finding the cheapest price, or the best price, I should say, will still continue to be very active around their renewal. And I'm not sure these reforms will have a radical difference with that, with that behaviour. And I suppose, you know, it, it looks like we've got some seriously big premium increases coming down the pan as well on the back of inflation and, and perhaps that, you know, the cupboard running dry in terms of reserve margins across the, the market to some extent, or at least insurers becoming more concerned about that. And so maybe all of this will be just washed over by a general high level of premium increases, whether you're renewing or not. I think so. You're right, absolutely, to say that the premiums are likely to be going up. I think that's for sure the direction of travel with, with where we are with inflation. If you look at you know, the last couple of years for insurance has been a for lots of industries has been a really strange time with the pandemic. But I'm coming at this from a motor insurance perspective. 2020 was a good year for motor insurance because people didn't drive very much and therefore people didn't crash very much. 
And even though companies, you know, like my previous company, Admiral, gave some money back as a, as a goodwill gesture, it was still a good year, and, and the in- industry got a, I think it was ninety percent net combined ratio, which is something like a record. It started sliding last year as people started to drive more and recognize 96%. This year will be a loss. And you've seen the profit warnings from insurance companies. You've seen the, the profits coming down with insurance companies. It is becoming more difficult for them because effectively the decrease in frequency was hiding the full evil of inflation. Inflation was that. This isn't a new thing. This isn't something that's happened since Putin invaded Ukraine. This is something that's been bubbling away for a very long time, and it was masked by frequency falling as much as it did. No longer. Frequency is radically back up, not quite to pre-pandemic levels, but not very far away. And now we're starting to see prices. Right now, it varies by different insurance companies, but we're starting to see prices heading north. Next year, I think you might see price rises of up to 20%. Wow. We've nicely moved into the present here. And yeah, we had a couple of trends in the market we want to discuss with you. And obviously, the key one be it being inflation. I guess I'm quite interested to also understand from a motor perspective, what the kind of drivers of that inflationary increase is. So what are the different components which is causing it to be increased? I've said that they're, they're not new. Some of these have been, been going on for a little while. So a lot of it is on supply side, where there have been some chronic shortages We're seeing the semiconductor issue and the lack of production of semiconductors, meaning that people aren't buying new cars or aren't getting new cars as quickly as they used to do. And that has ballooned the secondhand car market. Well, that's a key driver for inflation for a motor insurance company because it costs them more to settle a total loss claim than previously it did. The technology in cars with hybrids and with electrification means very often these parts are incapable of being repaired. They have to be replaced. When you replace it, it takes longer. It's less green. It's less sustainable. It's more expensive to replace than it is to repair. So the technology in cars is having a detrimental effect on the cost of claim. You then look at the repair sector as a whole, and I think there's something very concerning going on there. There's vast amount of vacancies in the repair sector. I think 15% of vacancies are currently open. There's been a shift in the labour market since Brexit. The demographic in the repair sector and the automotive sector has seen a lot of people leave the industry. At just the time, you need to be reskilling people to deal with all these the different repairs methodologies that we're dealing with, with the change in car parks. And of course, another aspect of inflation would be the, the cost of medical care for injured claimants. And the care sector, the sector you know, of the care workers, it seems to be one that's been inordinately affected by Brexit. Also, seems to be one where you know it's very hard work for not very high pay. And anecdotally, I'm hearing that people are dropping out of that industry because it might be that they can earn more money being a Sainsbury's delivery driver, you know, for far fewer hours. So that's not good in terms of supply. How do you see things panning out there in terms of the supply and demand of, of care services? Yeah, you're right. I think that Brexit did have a significant impact on that. And again, that's not that's one of those issues that we've seen bubbling over for a little while. And, and care is often the, the most expensive component of a large claim. And so we're seeing the care rates increase significantly. It, I think it's a very difficult position for insurance companies, you know, that they are lumbered with this cost. There's no obvious solution to how you deal with that. I mean, people talk about some of the telecare 
solutions that you can have where people are moving more towards getting some of their care needs serviced remotely. Um, but for a lot of people, most seriously injured claimants, that's not going to be an option for them. And they're going to need in-person care, 24-hour-a-day care, and it's expensive. Another key trend I know we wanted to talk about, and that was claims prevention. So I guess for some people, that would sound ideal. Let's just stop the claims happening altogether. But I guess actually, you know, let's, what in reality do we mean in the motor market when we're talking about claims prevention? Well, we just talked about inflation and we talked about the way in which insurance companies will, will deal with that by putting prices up. There's a whole host of different things that insurance companies c- can be doing around data and analytics to sharpen their pricing and their risk selection. They need to use automation to avoid repetitive tasks and use human beings where they really add value, not rekeying data from one system to another system and all that sort of thing. But the thing I think we need to be talking about more is that thing, Jessica, claims prevention. How do I, as an insurance company, prevent my customer from having the one thing he doesn't want to have? It's utopian, it's tricky, and I'm sure everybody would like to have it. How do you actually go about doing it? There is no silver bullet with this. A lot of people will talk about telemetry and how that will help, and perhaps you can go on to expand on how that might be. But even if you haven't got telematics today, you have lots and lots of data as an insurance company. It might sit in lots of different silos, and it might be unstructured, and it might be very, very difficult for you to process that in some timely way that you want to do it. But it's within your gift to be able to solve that, I think. And there's a great incentive to do it. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a roundabout in, I don't know, Nottingham, just off the M1, where there's an exponential rise. The insurance company can see there's been an exponential rise in claim frequency. They might say the normal frequency is X, but we've seen this exponential rise and it's gone to X plus Y. We don't know what's causing it. It's a a new road layout. It might be there's a fraud gang operating there. It might be just bad luck for all we know. But we haven't got any telematics to know which drivers are using that. We do don't know which of our customers live in that locality. So an insurance company that spots that is able to communicate with its customers and the communication is really important because some will want email, some will want WhatsApp, some will want gamified communication, some will want Alexa, a way in which you communicate most effectively with the different segments and say to people, you live in that locality, and this is the roundabout you might you might use, you need to be more cautious, more vigilant around this roundabout because something's happening and it's causing more accidents and otherwise it normally would do. Now, that enhanced vigilance We're human beings. If somebody says, take more care because something's about to happen here, that enhanced vigilance collectively amongst that group might deliver you slightly lower claims frequency. It's one roundabout, one instance. But the insurance companies have vast amounts of this data and they can use that to try and help them, try and help their customers from not having those claims in the first place. The bigger issue is data and how we go on from to use data to help our customers into the long run. That sounds amazing. And, you know, it's very much in line with the ethos of insurance companies contributing more to the to the public interest. You know, we, we know that certain, you know, and I know it's not so much in the motor sector, but other sectors, insurers got a, a bad rap during COVID for not paying claims that people, you know, lay people expected to be paid. And I think it put the spotlight on the insurance industry and how good a corporate citizen it is. So the sort of thing you're describing there you know, it feels like a win-win because it could save that insurance company and all insurance companies quite a lot of money on claims. But it's also 
uh, contributing a genuine public good. Are you aware of sort of ABI initiatives or, or coordinated initiatives across multiple insurers to look at these sorts of things? No. And I think it's pretty patchy at the moment. I'm not sure that it's being talked about in with quite the preeminence that it should be talked about. I, for me, I think it's a, it's a huge factor. I see it as the ultimate customer service. We talk in, in insurance about the moment of truth being that point where the insurance, but the, the customer brings the insurance company to report a, a loss. I would move that backwards a little bit. I would say the moment of truth, the customer came in that five minutes prior to the accident taking place. Insurance is a protection product. Interpret that literally. Let's protect our customers from having their, those bumps. Sean and I had a very interesting conversation with some clients yesterday with the focus being on climate change. And we naturally got on the topic of electric vehicles and, and how they will be massively shaping the motor market going forward. So I guess, yeah, looking to the future, do you think we could see different but other types of claims being generated from these electric vehicles? I think potentially it's, it's, it's probably more an issue around the repair side that electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles just have a totally different repair methodology, whether you heat the metals up, whether you can do them in cool conditions or not. And do we have the skill set within the automotive market to repair those right now? Well, that's a real challenge for that sector, actually. And it does require some intervention, I think, to look into the long term and say, right, how to make sure that we keep these cars on the road. The thing about batteries is the current battery methodology is all about range and then people are reporting various different issues around that. Then you've got the infrastructure side of it. How do you charge these batteries on longer journeys? But I think there's continual research going on into battery improvement. You also see the disposal issue of batteries as well and, and what happens when these vehicles get damaged and they get salvaged. So I think there's lots of different challenges around it. But for me, the dominant one is around how you repair these, how you repair them and having capacity and the skill set in the labour market to be able to do that. Because it's just very different from how it used to be. We used to stick a car on a jig and beat the panels out of it. Now it's recalibrate the battery and do all sorts of different software type things. So standing back from all this and thinking back to your sort of core area of experience over the years, which has been claims handling and the very key part of claims handling, which is setting case estimates, especially for bodily injury cases where it's very hard to predict the final settlement cost. What scope do you see for the industry to improve its practices around case reserving? And perhaps, uh, you know, what would be the role of better analytics in improving the overall accuracy and modelling of those cases? Reserving is and always has been an inexact science. And, and I love reserving and I love discussing case reserves um, because it's subjective and it requires people to have an opinion on it. And their opinion is influenced by their experience and by their ability and their expertise. So it's always been this inexact science. At the lower end of it, I think analytics can influence the reserving. So a lot of insurance companies will do factor reserving and just apply that across the piece for certain subsets of claims. That's kind of a clunky tool. And I think that with the higher volumes of claims that you can deal with there, you have sufficient amounts of data for there to be an element of predictability about it and an element of more bespoke reserving there. When you get to the higher end of the value tree and the catastrophic losses that cost you six, seven, eight figures, multi-millions of pounds, of course, there's much, much, much less data there to be analysing. And I've gone into lots of meetings with analytics experts and thought I've had 
great amounts of data and they said it's nowhere near enough for us to be able to create a model that will give you outcomes that are sustainable that are that are safe to rely on it's it's just too patchy so you need vast amounts of data you just don't have that with some of the large claims because they are by their by their they are necessarily there's a few of them and that, that's where i think human beings will always be involved in that side of reserving claims i think it's very difficult for them not to be analytics might help to predict and to benchmark against but i don't think it will replace the human intervention on case reserving at the larger end but i do think it can sharpen it on the volume end yeah so we're not going to see robotic large bodily injury case reserving anytime soon no we're not i don't think we are i do think we're going to see a lot more robotics and automation and ai and machine learning in claims as a whole and we need to you know let's be clear about that we absolutely need to and insurance companies that don't move into that space there's an issue for them because the insure techs are increasingly moving into that space without any of the legacy that they've got and are offering this these customer-winning solutions that insurance companies need to have. So for sure, analytics is going to be a big factor. It is today, it's going to be bigger, but I think case reserving at the very highest end is still likely to be the preserve of humans. Great. I had one final kind of question actually I wanted to touch upon, and that was just understand a bit more about the new company you've set up, Matt, and kind of what, I know you've touched on lots of different topics and you're kind of saying at the beginning, but like, what's the kind of projects you've been working on at the moment? What's what's been really interesting in this kind of new journey you're discovering? So it's, say, we're only a month into it. I launched it purposely in July, thinking that in September people would be back and it would get busier, but actually it's been surprisingly busy already. There's a big appetite to understand particularly from the insure tech side of things, to understand what claims department of the future looks like, what solutions claims departments need to implement at this stage to be ready for that, what customers want. And I think with the insure techs, I'm seeing that the first iteration of insure techs has, may not have succeeded. This is the second coming, which sounds a bit religious, but it isn't meant to be. But the second coming of the insure tech industry is learning the lessons from that first wave and I think poses a bit of a threat to the insurance industry because it wants to deliver really winning solutions on the customer side. And it doesn't have this legacy of technology stacks and lots and lots of staff, and lots and lots of offices. It can go, it can be very agile and can deliver some winning solutions. So working with and helping them understand what the strategy is and how to implement that. That's been interesting so far. And as I said earlier on, I've, I've met a whole different variety of businesses and a lot of insure techs, but some law firms as well, some insurance companies already who are interested in understanding what the strategies might be and how you implement those strategies to deliver great customer outcomes, great loss ratio savings if you can get it. And also from the cultural side, and I think the Admiral thing comes through from that side, you know, the Admiral always has this reputation for, rightly, for having a, a great culture. And that culture leads into staff, you know, really fulfilling their potential. So there's an appetite to learn about that as well. So, yeah, it's been, so far, it's been really good. I have made some mistakes, of course, and I'm learning an awful lot. And I'm keeping more records than I've ever done before. I'm also in my own IT department, my own HR department, my own legal department, my own marketing department. So it's a bit like that, but there is a good network around me to help. So it's great fun. I'm really enjoying it. Well, that's it's amazing. And we really do wish you every success in that new venture. I think I'm sure it's going to be amazing. It's been so good to chat today. 
Thanks so much for joining us on um, the podcast. We've covered some really interesting areas. We wanted to end on just a couple of fun questions, which we've been asking every guest on our podcast this season. So I'll go with the first one, which is, what would your absolute dream job be outside of financial services? Oh, right. So it's, so it's not being a, an independent consultant <laughs> insurance. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> all right, yeah. I could be cliched. I could say I'd be a rock star, but so many people have seen me do karaoke. That's never going <laughs> to And my golf is way too tragic to be a professional golfer. So I'm going to rein it in and be a bit more realistic. I'd be a travel writer, a travel blogger. I love writing. I've always blogged and written. I love writing and I love traveling, meeting new people, seeing new cultures. It's fantastic. I love that, that sort of stuff. So if somebody wanted to pay me to do that for a living, I'd happily partake. <laughs> Maybe that's also going to influence your answers to the next question. So when you invite Charles and me round for dinner, what will you be cooking for us? When I invite you around, well, I'll, I'll get the red carpet, <laughs> up, that's for sure. It'll be an absolute joy to have the pair of you come around here. What will I cook you for dinner? Right. Well, I was one of those people who went through lockdown and started baking randomly. I don't know why. I, I started with, uh, there were lemon drizzles and chocolate brownies and Vicky sponges coming out from all sorts. But you can't have that for dinner. My savoury option is embarrassingly narrow. Do you like curry? Love a curry. Oh, great. <laughs> you know, that's what we'll be having. Well, I'll do, an, I do a pretty mean chicken curry, which sits somewhere between tikka masala and madras on the spicy side. Oh, okay. Just wrong. And we can have that, guzzle lager, put the world to rights for all night. Sounds great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a great conversation. Um, really enjoyed having you on. Thank you very much for having me. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.